Well, we're in the middle of our series, our Lent series, Empty and Filled. Uh, we had a great break last week with our missionaries, Phil and Katie, and so it's just great to have you back. We're going to jump right back in, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page. So um, we want to say we've been talking about why Lent. Why do we go through this every year? Why do we do this? Uh, so I want to make sure these are kind of ingrained in who we are. I want us to know that Lent is a season of facing our sin, to face the places where God still needs to do some work in us, to mature us, to help us, to grow in us, uh, maybe to, to confess and say, these are the places where I'm still falling short. I need your healing. I need your touch, Lord Jesus. Uh, Lent is also a season of emptying ourselves of unnecessary and sometimes distracting comforts. This is the part that most everybody knows about Lent. I gave up sweets for Lent. I gave up coffee for Lent. I gave up chocolate for Lent. I gave up... Facebook for Lent. You know, there are all kinds of different things that people give up for Lent. And so we're, we've been looking at some of these, why we do this. And today is no exception. We'll look at why are we called uh, to fast, to pray, to give. Um, that's kind of the, the big three usually associated with Lent. Why do we do that? And lastly, Lent is a season of directing our desires toward our Savior, Jesus. We are called to do this. And so today, as we look at an Old Testament passage in Isaiah, I want us to know that all of this culminates or pushes us or helps us come together to direct our desire toward our Savior. Now in Isaiah, there was kind of this mysterious suffering servant that we'll see a little bit more about. We now know as Jesus, the one who did suffer on our behalf, the one who gave everything that we might have that right relationship with God. So if you have your, your Bible, open them, however you get your Bible, whether it's electronic or in the book. Uh, you can do either one of those. If you don't have a Bible, take one of the ones in the seat back in front of you. We want you to have that as our gift. Uh, we have people who give to make sure we can restock the pews. We want you to have one. Take that home. And let's turn to Isaiah chapter 58, beginning at verse 1. But let's hear from the prophet Isaiah chapter 58. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. As if they were a nation that does what is right and had not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you have not noticed? Yet, on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sack, sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fast I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. It is not to, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? 
when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness, your right relatedness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and He will say, Here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. This is the Word of God to the people of God, and our response is, thanks be to God. I want to take just a moment, as I have been doing in the past, just to give you a little bit of the historical content. I'm going to give you just a, just a touch, because we are at the end of the book of Isaiah. Now, many would say that it almost feels like there should be two books of Isaiah, kind of like we have First and Second Samuel, or First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Thessalonians. It almost seems there's such a, a direct uh, contrast between the first part of Isaiah and the second part of Isaiah that it almost feels like there should be two. But what we're talking about is is a prophet uh, way back who began to prophesy as the Lord gave him word. And he prophesied at the beginning a lot of judgment with a little bit of hope left in there. Now judgment, I need you to understand something. God's judgment is never God's final word. God's judgment was in the hopes that he is still going to use this, this ragtag bunch that we call Israel, this Hebrews, to bring his light to all the world, to heal the nations, as he said to Abraham way, 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 way back in Genesis. But they had kind of, they had messed up. They had sought bad alliances. They had trusted in themselves. Their religion had become just all about them. And so God says there has to be a purifying fire. And this would culminate in the exile. Now, Isaiah doesn't spend a ton of time in the exile. He kind of leaves that for other uh, prophet books like Ezekiel and Daniel and those kinds of things. And so there's our break. Eventually, the, the, they, he declares the judgment. There's some time. And then, out of their bad alliances with the Egyptians and the Babylonians, eventually the Babylonians come in and carry them all off. And there's exile. But then... He starts fresh. And in the second half, there's still a little bit of judgment there, but there's a lot more hope as God begins to announce the time is over. It's time to move back into the land. It's time for the journey to continue. And so we see this hope beginning to build as we roll towards the end. And we're right in the midst of it. I know it doesn't seem hopeful, but I want you to see something. Now, I want to spend a little more time talking about the literary context. I know... Can everybody do this just for me real quick? Stretch up like this. Okay, all right. All right, take in a deep breath, ready? And then exhale. All right. I I have to be geeky for just a little bit, okay? So I need you to be awake. I need you to hear this thing because it kind of pulls everything together, this literary context of the passage that we are reading or the the section that we are reading. We're from, from chapters 56 to the end to 66. There is this thing called a chiasm. Can you say chiasm? 
Now, this is a literary device that was very popular in Hebrew times. It carried over into the Greek New Testament some. The Greeks used it. The Romans used it. And it followed a pattern. So it goes back and forth. And so the pattern is on either side. So I've tried to list it up here in themes. So you have kind of theme A. And you will see it at the beginning of it. And then it will end. The writing will end with that same theme of A. And then there would be a B, uh, a new theme that would be built on theme A. And over on this side, as you came back over the other side, there would be that same theme, but with a little different nuance. Now, typically, that's where it goes. Just A, B, B, A. And everybody wants to sing Dancing Queen and all that stuff. But, occasionally... There would be a theme C. Now it can go up higher, you know, D and E and F and all that kind of stuff. But for our purposes today, we have theme A at the beginning and at the end. Theme B, which builds on A at the beginning and the end. But the focus, the thing that holds it all together is C. That thing that unites it. It's kind of like the, the keystone of an arch. Or if we were to look at it, we would, we would see that what this does is is used to show a balance of order. And in our instance today, it is used to show God as the creator of this balance and this order. So theme A, which is in both sides, is part of what God is wanting to do in the world. Theme B, uh, that builds on A, is kind of our response, we're going to see. But theme C, this idea, is something that God has put in place and announced that makes everything down below it on both sides just make so much sense. It reminds me kind of, if you want to think of it this way, of kind of when they were building the St. Louis Arch. It was kind of strange. They didn't just build the whole arch and plop it down with a bunch of helicopters. Um, They built from one side and the other. You can see it here. This is in 1963. I think, Steve, you said you were there when they completed it, right? And uh, your your parents took you to see that. You were little. Yes, that's right. He was very young at the time. Newborn, right? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But you build from both sides. And then they put that center in the middle. It was almost as if they were saying, these two sides we're building, but we're trusting that there is someone, there is someone who has designed this, that when we get to the top, it's all going to work together. And it's going to connect. And it's going to hold the whole thing together. This is chiasm. Okay? This is a literary device. I know I'm geeking out on this, but let's get into it and hopefully you'll see why. Okay? Um, so here is our chiasm. So I want you to, to look at this. I hope you can kind of read that. If you're closer to the back and you want to look at that screen, you can. Um, but in, ver- in chapters 56 and 66, the whole thing is founded upon God's desire that all the nations are to join God's covenant family. How many of the nations? All of the nations. And so you will see that if you were to read the first part of chapter 56, you would see that. And if you go all the way out into chapter 66 towards the end, you will see that this is God's heart. That all of the nations would be a part of it. Then that's your theme A. Theme B would be that uh, basically now we have to look that there's a contrast between the wicked and the servants. I want us to understand that the wicked uh, are not just those who go around with little pitchforks and, you know, all that kind of stuff, little devil on their shoulder, but it's those who resist God's intention in the world. Let that sink in. Because that could be very religious people. 
Jesus saw this. That sometimes it wasn't the outsiders that, that rebelled against Jesus or resisted His intention. It was those who were very religious who said, I don't know that I want all the nations to join God's covenant family. But God says, in this theme right here, that theme B, and you're going to see it here and on the other side, there's a contrast between those who resist God's intention in the world and those who are servants, who decide to dedicate themselves to that purpose that God has intended in the world. And those who are eventually, at the end, those who resist will be sent out from God's city. And those who embrace it will see all the nations coming into the new Jerusalem. That means that if we are are tasked with doing that, that there's a chance for us to pray and repent. That, That might be a theme C. And then theme D is that mysterious suffering servant of God that we now know as Jesus. And He's the one who holds it all together. He's the one who was sent of God and by His design to invite us to repent to, so that we will know whether we are resisting or whether we are embracing the mission of God and all nations. That mission is that all nations would join God's covenant place. So we see that all nations are invited. The contrast between the servants and the wicked and repentance in life and worship. So we jump into our passage now. Are you ready? Are you with me? Do we need to, let's, let's do one more deep breath in. Out again. Okay, here we are. The end of geekery, okay? Now into the passage. Our passage, as you began to see, is that people are angry. That their fasts and their prayers had not resulted in God's blessing. We see that, that God is declaring that, you know, they've done this. They've done this over and over and over again. They, they've, they've fasted. They've prayed. And, and so God then gives a reply in our passage. Let's look at God's reply. It begins, I believe, in verse 3. And He says, Yet on the day of your fasting you do as you please. Yes, you've been fasting and you've been praying. You've been doing these things. But on those days you're doing as you please. And he connects that with exploitation of workers. He goes on and says, your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You must be from upstate New York. That was a wicked fist. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. God begins to say that there's something different that has to take place. He questions, he says, is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Another literary device, if you were to read this in the original language, it gives you the answer. And that answer should be what? No. That's that's not the reason that we fast. Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? The answer is, of course, no. Not at all. In fact, I love what Thomas Constable writes uh, in his uh, commentary on this. He says, basically what was going on is that it consisted only in Israel bowing their heads and not their hearts. God wants your heart, not just your head. When He has your heart, He will have your head too. That is the importance. Bowing the head like a reed expresses formal worship. In other words, the reed doesn't like intend to bend over. It just does because it, it's there. It's kind of like, oh, well, they're playing, they're playing my favorite hymn. Woo, raise my hand. You know, it's like automatic. 
You know, it's not that the heart has changed. It's like we're, they were geared to do this. And he says, bowing the head like a reed expresses formal re- worship, like a reed automatically bending in response to the wind. They're just going through the motions. So how, it got me thinking, how do we measure our obedience today? How, how do we measure our obedience to God? Is it in church attendance? Did you know the latest statistic says that the average regular attending church member comes to church 1.8 times a month? Not even half the time. Especially on five-week Sundays like we have today. Is that, is that how we measure our obedience? Think, oh, I'm present, I'm here. And that's good, I'm glad you're here. I want you to be here, I'd prefer you to be here than not. But this can't be just something that we just go through the motions. God is calling us for something more than just attendance. Is it in our giving and our tithing? You guys have been doing great. You've helped us reduce uh, where we were behind and those kinds of things. I hope you'll continue to do that. But if it's just giving so that I can kind of formally say, well, that's what I'm supposed to do. Here it is. But there's no joy in the gift. There's no excitement about I'm giving because this is a part of joining God's mission that all the nations would join His covenant family. Then you might be better off just keeping your money. Because it's not about being more religious. It's about joining the mission of God. Is it your moral outward behavior? We used to do this all the time. You know, I don't drink, smoke, chew, or hang around people who do. Somehow that made me a better person and and all those kinds of things. You may make some of those choices, some of those stances, and that's great. But if it's not for the purpose of joining the mission of God, which is to see all the nations of the world join His covenant family, then... You're just making a stand. I don't know what you're standing for, but you're making it. And so we are called. It's not that those are bad, but there has to be something else. God says that there's a better way. Let's see what, what, what uh, Isaiah writes to us. He says, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke. Where do you see injustice in your world? That's where God's heart beats. And that's the place where we are called to action if we are joining the mission of God. It is to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. So we begin to look and see where is that taking place in our world. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? How many of us think about that during the season of Lent? When you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood, God wants us to realize when you see someone naked and no clothing and unprovided for and injustice being done to them, to remind them that they are your flesh and blood, that God's desire is that they, as a part of the nations of the world, would join the covenant family of God. This is the mission. This is what we are called to. In other words, our motives in the things that we do actually matter. Do you believe that? You know that. If somebody gives you a gift and says, here, I got you something. Do you think they were motivated to do something kind? Or are they just, well, I got to do it. It's expected. Merry Christmas. Happy birthday. 
Or when they say, I thought about this. This, I, I hope this really just blesses your life and I got you something and you open it. It's something that you, you mentioned two months ago that you thought would be nice but it was too trivial to buy. There's some motive behind that, that they, they love you. They, they understand who you are. This is what he is getting at. In fact, Dr. John Oswald says uh, in his, in his uh, interpretation of this, if they want to deprive themselves, let them do it for the sake of the oppressed, the needy, the helpless, not for the sake of their own religiosity. God's nature is, never to, is, God's nature is to give God's self away to those who can never repay. Do you know that? There is no clearer evidence of the presence of God in a person's life than a replication of that same behavior. There's our motivation. That we are called to go and to replicate what God longs to see happen in the world. So what is salvation for? Well, I think this video will help us understand this idea of what Isaiah was getting at when it came to what is salvation for. What does this mean? Let's, let's watch this video um, so that you can kind of be what salvation is for. Let's dim the lights there. Crank it. In the beginning, a triune God was tripping and flipping and dancing and spilling all over himself. And he said, let there be light. Gift. Darkness. Gift. Earth. Sky. Animals. It was all pure gift. But in all that goodness, there was nothing in the material world that could reciprocate. There was nothing that could respond to God. And then, enter a gift better than anything else. Crafted in God's own image. With his own breath. Crowned with glory and honor. Enter us. And in that same abundance, he blessed us and he said, Go, explore my world. Unwrap the gift of my creation. Bless the world with your own gifts. But then there was that tree. And the funny thing about that tree, it wasn't a gift. And wouldn't you know, we took it anyway. And there was death and confusion, and it's like we forgot what life was all about. Being gift givers. And then taking what God didn't offer, we severed our relationship with Him. And all creation suffered. Then there came that day when God gave us another gift. God Himself becomes a man. The gift he offers to the Father is himself. And all of creation is in tow behind him. Once and for all, he restores the way of our purpose. He restores our priesthood. We can once again offer to God our lives, our work, our knowledge, everything. We join our gifts with Christ to offer the world to the Father in love. And for the life of the world. And that is the purpose of our salvation. That's what it's for. For the life of the world. Do you see how this joins the two sides together? The salvation, the one that would come in that suffering servant that Isaiah would talk about in the middle, in theme D. That he pulls all of this together and says, your life is to be gift. If you are to model what I have done in the world in giving, Jesus says, I gave myself as a gift for the life of the world. If you are to be my followers, your life is to be given as gift for the life of the world. Jesus would say it this way, if any would come after me, let them take up their cross and follow me. Those are hard words, but that is what we are called to.
That your life, if you choose Christ, is to be seen as gift. Gift for the life of the world. What does that have to do with Lent? It means that our spiritual disciplines, whatever you have chosen to, uh, to do, to give up or to pray more, to read the Bible more, or those kinds of things, our motive has to be, if we are followers of the, the suffering servant, is to realize that all of that is a call to be a gift for the life of the world. Those around you, those that you work with, those that you live with, those that you uh, live life around, it is, it is called. You are called to, to, to be a part of that thing. It may mean a little repentance needs to take place. Oh God, where have I gotten off course in thinking this is about me or my religiosity? Where can I join again to be a servant of your mission to see all nations invited to God's covenant family. Will we be servants or will we resist God's intention? If you fast, here's your questions for closing. If you have chosen to fast, given up something, who will you feed? If you spend $5 a day on a mochaccino latte frappa whatever, and you said, I'm giving that up during the month or during Lent, Where is that $5 or $6 or $7 going? Could it be used to feed someone else? That takes it from being just about what I gave up and about what I'm giving into for the life of the world. Think about that. If you kneel, who will you stand for? If you're going to spend time kneeling in prayer, who in your prayer are you standing up for? Who do you see where there is injustice in the world and suffering in the world? Are you praying for them? For the refugee? For the slave? For those who have, who have been trafficked? Are you raising them up? What will you stand against? Will you participate in your prayer? Will your prayer drive you to join an organization to help to see what God wants to do? To join in His mission to see all nations become a part of His, His covenant family? If you give, what will you give to? I can give you some some uh, examples. Will you give to something like this? Will you, will you give if your goal was to give out more? Will you give to missions that are going to go out and going to be a part of trying to see all the nations become a part of God's covenant family? Do you see how this changes how you approach Lent? Take that thing where you're just giving up and merge it with something in God's mission. And lastly, will you give yourself. That's what God wants more than anything. All the disciplines in the world are about learning to give more and more and more of who we are to God until God has it all so that we can be gifts for the life of the world. That's the call of Lent. That's the call. Are you willing to answer with here I am like Isaiah did? Send me. Here I am, send me. It might mean a little repentance and confession. But I want to be a part of the servants. I don't want to resist. Send me. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I just feel like today that there are some of you who long to answer that question. Who long to know that your salvation is more than just fire insurance for after you die. That your salvation is that you are called to be a gift. You are called to be a gift for the life of the world. 
that God's mission for you has not changed. And we are called as a church to go and be gift for the life of the world. Are you willing to say, Oh God, I give you everything. If that means, like Jesus said, to take up my cross and follow you, then I will do that. Help me to do that. You'll have to give me strength to do that. But I give you myself. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. But I just wonder if there are some of you who, by coming forward, would symbolically say, I want to give myself for the life of the world. God, I want to join your mission. I don't want it to be any longer about me being religious. I want it to be about the life of the world. If that's you, would you just come right now? You can kneel at an altar. You can stand in the front, however you choose to do that. But if you're saying, God, I want to give you everything. And there are some things I need you to handle in my life so that I can become gift to the world. Would you just come right now? Don't wait. Uh, we're not going to sing anything. I'm going to pray in just a moment. If God is speaking to you right now and you're saying, I want to be gift for the life of the world, help me to understand. Help me to partner. I don't want to resist anymore. Just come right now. Stand up. Come right now. Come right now. Just come. Don't leave this place not having offered. Come right now. Come right now. One has come. Is there anyone else? who would say, I want to be a part of this mission. I want to be a part of God's mission today. I want to see the nations join His covenant family. If that's you, come today. Come today. Some are coming. Will you come? Men, will you stand and say, I am joining God's team. I want to be a part of His mission. Men, Will there be any men who will rise up and say, yes, I want to join. For the life of the world, for the life of my family, for the life of my colleagues, I will come. I will offer myself. If that's you, you come. There's nothing to be ashamed of. This is you saying, I want to join with what God's purposes and intention are for the life of the world. Show me where there's injustice. Help me to stand. Help me to pray. Help me to give with good motives and good heart. To the kids I teach, to the kids I parent, to my friends and my family, you come. Well, I'm going to pray. Some have come. You can come while I pray. Lord Jesus, the suffering servant that Isaiah could only point us toward, but who now we know And who now we know has torn down the dividing walls between us. Between us and God. Between us and other nations. It is to you, Lord Jesus, that we surrender our lives. We hear your call. Take up your cross. Follow me. Help us to realize that to be a Christian is to model Christ-like giving of ourselves for the life of the world. 
Help us to go. We want to join and enter your new Jerusalem. Your kingdom that you announced is already here and is still coming and one day will be fully present. Come, Lord Jesus, into our church and into our hearts. Soften them and send us out. For we pray and we ask all of these things in Your name and through Your Spirit and Your strength, we will go. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand and receive the final blessing? And now, may you, my brothers and sisters, realize that your mission, your call, is to join with what God longs to do in the world. That as Jesus gave His life as a gift for the life of the world, we are called to go in His name, to be light, to be gift for the life of those around us. May you go in His strength and His power. May you go in His grace and His mercy. May you go in His peace with healing words and a helping hand. I pray all of these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One God forever and ever. Amen. Go in His love.